the Podfix Network. Hello and welcome to episode 218 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk <laughs> filmmakers and filmmaking. From it, just making it up now. Sorry, yeah. in- it's been too long. <laughs> Right, let's try again. Uh, I want to put you on the spot and see if you can do this. Right, serious now, serious now. Here we go. This is a podcast where we talk... Filmmaking. From indie film to studio films and... Everything in between. How to make them, how to get them made, and how to try not to... F it up, in our very, very humble opinion. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to our latest episode, where we have on the guest, Guy Pigden. Writer, director, actor, extraordinaire. Guy has made the film Older, which is an honest, confronting drama comedy about sex, love, relationships, growing up, and how a nostalgic attachment to the past can colour our perception of the present, sometimes for the worst. I am Giles Alderson. Uh, I am also a writer, director, producer, and uh, I am delighted to be joined by my co-host today, the fantastic Robbie McCain, who's also a writer, director, producer, <laughs> actor. Well, time will tell, Giles, time will tell. Mm, I, think, I think it's told. <laughs> <laughs> that ship has sailed. That's gone, mate. No, no, I disagree. As in, if you want to be an actor, you can do it at any age. Or if you want to be a filmmaker, I don't think there should be an age limit, is what I'm saying. Giles is specifically talking about me, that you you probably. Yeah, unless it's a cameo in in some form. Um, Oh, oh, you're up for a cameo, right? Yeah, maybe. I mean, well, you you do the odd cameo, don't you? I noticed a cameo from our good friend Andy Roger in uh, your film, Stranger in Our Bed. He plays yes. a sinister-looking man on a park bench. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm filming really near where Andy lives. Um, Andy, will you come down and have a look? Yeah, yeah, sure. Andy, listen, I really need a creepy-looking guy <laughs> to sit on the park bench and just look oddly at our lead. Do you, do you know anyone? <laughs> In fact, you've, you've got a beard, Andy. You could yeah, he's got a beard. You look kind... You, you, you could pull off creepy. You could be an evil Jesus. Yeah, so could you sit on the park bench for me? Yeah. He was he was very generous and said, yeah, he'd love to. And he sat on the park bench and looked creepy. It was brilliant. But yes, The Stranger in Our Bed, great segue, Robbie, is deep in post now. I am doing my final day in the grade today, um, which is, well, tomorrow, but today for you listening. Um, if you're listening on the day I'm in the grade, because you might listen to this in a year's time, which then it'll be a year since I've been in the grade. Mm-hmm. I'm confused now. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yes, and then on Friday, uh, hopefully this Friday, we're doing ADR and then the sound mix has already started. The score is coming together. Yes, very soon we'll have a finished movie. Robbie? Everything will come together. The circle is almost complete. It is. <laughs> so on this week's episode with Guy Pigden, we talk about his latest film, Older. We go in depth about that. We also talk about how he started uh, when he made his first short film at 16. Yeah, and he worked as a runner at Scala in London, no less. There's some great stories about that. And then in 2010, he shot his first feature, I Survived a Zombie Apocalypse. So he talks about some lessons from the set from that and also the importance of not banking on one film. 
He also talks about why you should trust your filmmaking instincts. Uh, and being on set is a massively brilliant and a great education. He talks about how older his new film came about, how he managed to raise 7K through crowdfunding, and the whole shooting process from start to finish. He also talks about distribution and sales agents and being screwed over. He goes into depth about making sure you understand your contracts. Mm. All that is to come for you wonderful people of the Filmmakers Podcast gang. Uh, Robbie, we have some shout outs for those lovely people who do listen and tweet or give us some love. Yeah, big shout-outs to Edward Farmer, Jason McColgan, Mark Hammett. And Cassius Rayner, Jen at Colab Writers, and Matt Fodor. Thank you so much. We have some more next week. If you want your name read out on the Filmmakers Podcast, then get on our Twitter. Say how much you love this podcast and tell your friends about it at FilmmakersPod on Twitter or on Instagram, the Filmmakers Podcast, because that's the name of the show. And if you're really that extra, extra bit of a fan, you can uh, check out our Patreon. It's grown a lot since uh, we set up back in the day, Giles. I noticed there's there's four lovely tiers now. Yes, we have. The wonderful Hugh Siddle has been diving in to help us set the Patreon up even more so. So there are four tiers now, as Robbie says. Uh, so do go have a look because there are all sorts of benefits. There's discounts on merch. Uh, there's Q&A sessions and bonuses for you for joining us even more than you are already. So if you do fancy that, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash the filmmakers podcast and do come join us. Be part of this team as so many wonderful people are doing, especially you, Kevin Pybus, legend. And Kevin, I'll probably see you, and I say see you in inverted commas, on Clubhouse on Thursday. Every Thursday we do a live chat where we talk about filmmaking topics of the week. And I think this week I might do it on screenwriting. I'm going at 7pm till 9pm, uh, great British mean time. Uh, so come join us then. Would that be British summertime, Giles, rather than uh, GMT? It is good to have you back, Robbie. Uh, so everyone, uh, enjoy Robbie's dulcet tones on this week's episode as we are joined by the fantastic Guy Pigdon. Sit back, relax and enjoy the tales of making older and others. Enjoy. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good, man. Um, nice to meet you guys. Yeah, it's really nice to meet you too as well, Guy. Yeah, good to see you. You've got a nice uh, classy looking wood backdrop behind you. Oh, it's is, uh... fake wood. It's fake panels, <laughs> fake background. It's all an illusion. Just like filmmaking. It's nothing's real. But, Everything's um... fake. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're looking good. You've got lovely long hair at the moment. Lockdown hair. Nice beard. And uh, Yes. And we're all wearing dark colours today, which is pleasant, isn't it? That's right, yeah. <laughs> How are you, buddy? You all right? I'm good, man. Yeah, yeah? it's uh, it's it's 3 a.m. over here, so uh, I've got my black coffee and I'm... Is it 3 a.m.? Holy moly. Why did we choose this time? I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, that's we... all right. It's what works for you guys, really, and... Um, I'm just excited to to be doing this and I know how busy you guys are too as well. Like I can't believe, uh, I know we're going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I just can't believe that you guys do a podcast mm. while you make films as in while you you continue it. Like it doesn't go, hey, we're going on a hiatus for six months while I go off and do my film. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's what people like about 
filmmakers podcast is that and you know we've got wonderful people like robbie who can go cool i'll take over you know and and i think people like the fact that we're on set doing stuff and we're talking about that it just i think it helps i think people relate to that i know i would we always try and find ways to squeeze giles in in some way even if he's shooting we'll <laughs> we'll have him doing on set kind of tour diaries and things yeah like that. You do, yeah you do these wonderful intros as well as uh, <laughs> Bless you. i'm just impressed that because you have so much energy i don't know when you pre-record them or you know as you go but um to have that much energy for the podcast where when a film takes so much energy as well i don't know it's just i just couldn't believe that you guys could maintain it you know there's, there's been a few times where like on set of the last one where I've, I've literally come off set i've gone robbie i know you've got a part of the podcast in a you know a few hours but can we do the <laughs> intro now i'm like hi yeah i've just come off set i'm trying to find a quiet place in the wherever we're shooting to do it but that's like the fun of it isn't it right i mean podcasting is not easy people think it's easy but you do it and then you go oh hang on there's a lot to this i think he did it from a from a bathroom one time yeah yeah uh, it actually sounded okay Um, (laughs) she sounded all right yeah (laughs) terrible bathroom echo but actually had curtains and but it was the quietest place in that mansion that we could go but i was filming in a mansion so you know swings and roundabouts (laughs) right (laughs) there's all that um and how's new zealand for the covid have you been able to get out and about podcast from home how's it work it's pretty insane in the sense that, um, you know, for for us, uh, we are living in this bubble like of n- normality. Um, we're actually, you know, we had these lockdowns. We've had had these big lockdowns to keep COVID out, and now we have this very uh, rigorous system for anyone coming into our country has to do this fourteen day quarantine. And what it means is that we're largely. Uh, except when there's like a scare and maybe there's community transmission or whatever, we're largely like living. It's like the world, it's the twilight zone. It's completely the twilight zone because, you know, there's this chaos of the whole world COVID and COVID affects us too, in terms of the economy and all this sort of thing. But we're living a normal life and everyone else is in lockdown. We did have a couple of lockdowns, but because we've managed to sort of keep our borders closed, um, essentially life is normal we have concerts we can go to bars you know all of this stuff like even from a film perspective like a lot of um, big films are now planning to come here because they don't have those same restrictions once they go through that quarantine period um, to to film here so I feel very lucky and very privileged that I'm one of the only countries in the world that has been relatively unscathed by by COVID, we're sort of, yeah, very fortunate. I've never been to New Zealand and I've always wanted to go. Charles, we should go. We could do the Lord of the Rings tour. We could do anything. I'm, I'm up for that. I'm all over that. <laughs> totally. I'd love that so much. You know, we, we don't have those sort of like even, you know, Giles, you're talking about um, shooting in that manner. Uh, mm. We don't have manners really over here. They're all very modern kind of you know new homes there's just a very few places like that so um uh that's what we lack i think in terms of like locate locations and stuff over here Mm, because you do have beautiful vistas to shoot and you do have all that it does look incredible i suppose you're right when you need that sort of big old house or big scary stuff i suppose it, it it's very british isn't it and we forget that or american with that look um 
How do you go about finding locations then, searching for stuff like that? Because your film's full, Older is full of really interesting locations. Was it kind of your houses? How did you go about that then? It, it was. It was lots of uh, our, uh, using our friends or our houses. Um, there was a lot of, so when I... I, when I moved to Auckland, I kind of fell in love with with Auckland City, and I uh, worked a, a security job, a night night job, uh, a security call center. And but I, uh, when I would go out onto the streets of Auckland, I fell in love with that kind of uh, night um, cityscape sort of look. And I sort of and what Auckland is is although it is a city, it, around it has all these sort of amazing sort of uh, locations that are very scenic and 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 very sort of you know um, beaches, forests, all that sort of thing. It's a real mishmash uh, in a way. But I was sort of really into this whole urban thing, and I sort of started thinking about how I, I would just be driving around to these different places or walking around on my break, sort of thinking about all the spots that I could film. And, and in fact, you know, we sort of did some tests very early on, which was just me sort of moping about, um, you know, these places, but, you know, shooting with our camera, which is the, was the Canon 5D Mark III, which is a very, uh, very good and low light camera, you know, and it was, you know, part of that DSLR revolution, but it was one of its best traits was how good it made things look at night. It did. Yeah. Um, so everyone just shot a night with it. It was like, yeah, it's good at night. So let's shoot a night. But then you, you missed some of the aesthetics around that. Oh, you didn't have the right light to make it look good at night. You know, it's all well and good. These amazing cinematographers going the 5d Mark two can look incredible at night, but if you don't know how to use it, well, <laughs> it can be a problem. Everyone was using them for a while, weren't they? Cause you, you shot older a, a couple of years ago now. I mean, it was, well, um, we we started filming seven years ago, and we sort of fil- we filmed sporadically from, you know, uh, from twenty thirteen, the end of twenty thirteen, and then we you know would film some pickups here and there, would film some more and some more. So when we started, the the, the Canon five D Mark III had just been released; it had just replaced the the Mark II, and it was this revol- it was you know this revolutionary ca- camera, and it was also kind of like the 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 best of the best within that sort of price bracket. Um, and then as sort of time went on, uh, it's become, you know, less special in that regard in terms Indeed. of like the look it could give you, uh, is, you know, all cameras can now give you that look like all yeah. sort of, iPhone, of those sort yeah. of yeah hybrid DSLR cameras can, can give you something nice. And so it did lose a little bit of its sort of, um, initial appeal just because it took us so long to to shoot and reshoot and do pickups and bits and pieces and stuff like that. But yes, we, we, we did start this, uh, journey a very long time ago. Well, we'll, we'll jump back into that in a little bit because you know, you, it's incredible journey yours, but, uh, I think it might be really interesting to talk about what films inspired you, not only as a kid, but maybe now as well, you know, what, what, what made you want to become a filmmaker? Let's start there. Can I take a guess first? Uh, oh yeah, guy. yeah, I like that. I, I would have thought um, Michael Mann might be on your kind of list. Oh, of really? Inspirational directors, just because the urban factor and some of those club scenes. It like reminds me of uh, Michael Mann does a lot of experimentation with digital cinematography in his like recent films, and it's very like yeah, he loves the immediacy of the digital kind of camera. And uh, I love how guy is going. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> Guys, like, how can I spin this now? Spin this to make it go. Yes, it really was Michael Mann. But if if that that might just be me kind of bringing bringing that to my viewing of the film, like what really inspired me um, in terms of the look uh, was actually 
I, and I know it's going to sound weird because he, he's done a bit less of this at the time that I was making this, but Terrence Malick in terms of mm. the idea of uh, visually in terms of you sort of let the sun, you know, dictate where you're going to film at a certain time. Like it blew my mind, the concept of the idea that he would shoot at like three different houses, depending on where the sun was to make up this one house, this one interior. So I was quite obsessed with that um, in terms of the, that, that, that sort of neon look to, um, can't remember the name of uh, the director now, and it's embarrassing now. But he did Drive and oh, Nicholas uh, Winding Refn. That's the one. So he he was a big like that look was a big inspiration too in terms of those those neon those night scenes. Um, but just in terms, I guess of the uh, not the look, but the um, uh, the, the 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 sort of content. It was really uh, Richard Linklater and um, the before the before sunset sunrise series and and stuff like that. So I think a bit of a melting pot of all of that sort of stuff. That's great though. I love that you've got those different areas. That's really cool. That's like not saying right. I just specifically like it's uh, eclectic, shall we say? Yeah, which it's, it's re- yeah, inspires it's really, you. I um. I watched, you know, sometimes I get on these weird trains of thought. So also like, I know, I can't remember, I think it was on a different podcast, but they were talking about cross dissolves between um, films and, and I was obsessed with the cross dissolves uh, and the um, eyes wide shut, the Stanley Kubrick and the Christmas trees and all the lights and stuff. Again, that was just something that played into it. And I guess you all these, but you sort of kind of get on the train tracks of this one, um, director, uh, only God forgives was the one that I watched. Uh, yeah, a lot Nicholas of, uh, that film. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just kind of a bit polarized that film because not some people love it, some a lot people of hate yeah, it. It's, it's weird. I like, um, there was another film too that really inspired me, which is called um, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, oh, yeah, which, I don't know uh, that con- one. Content wise, is um, nothing like uh, older, but visually, there was just something about it. I highly recommend it if you guys haven't seen it to check it out it's kind of like a a, a little known culty film and uh it's by a director whose name is kind of hard to pronounce panos cosma he did the color he did the new nicholas cage color of purple mandy uh, yeah he didn't he? yeah mandy yeah. sorry Mandy. he's the son of uh, george cosmatis who did tombstone and a bunch of other films in the oh, 80s wow. yeah okay yeah yeah but pavlos cosma he, he's a good director to watch actually he has a very unique style and voice and take on things that i th- yeah, but his first film I thought was particularly good. So kind of get on all these train tracks. I had seven years of people to steal from, I guess. <laughs> but that's it. That's what we surely, that is what we do, right? I mean, we don't steal, steal, but we get inspired by that. And if there's something we like, because those directors stole it from someone else, Tarantino is very open about that. And I think as filmmakers to not shy away from that and go, I'm inspired by that. And I'm going to try and make it look like yours. You'll never make it look like theirs. You'll put your own slant on it when you're on the day, different actors, different look, different light. But at least you've got a vision. You've got something you're aiming for rather than going, oh, I've got my own specific thing I'm going to try and do, which is cool too. But I th- it's not a problem for me to be inspired by that. But it's the kind of thing where everything has been done to a certain extent. So you kind of need to know where you're stealing from yes. and be a bit sort of canny about that and um, taking from as many elements as possible like like you've done. So. Yeah, it's good. I love the Terence Malick inspiration. And it's that's kind of on point, isn't it? Because he this is the man who took 
like a long gap between making days of heaven and the thin red line so it's almost like the seven year thing almost tracks now or it's like this labor of love yeah yeah. and it's interesting i've just been reading the mike medavoy book about you know how he's almost persuaded terence malick to come back and make another film and it's because he was writing during that time but he just didn't care for directing and in the end he'd written something uh the thin red line that he was like well i don't want anyone else to direct this but if i do it it has to be my way and my vision and i'll cast all these people and did it if i want it's just really fascinating why he chose to come back and direct he just wasn't interested we know how hard it is to do it and he was like i can't be asked with the shit you know so well, much especially shit. the the way he works too, I think, you know, I, I, I can't remember where I read, but like the sort of the stories of them, like literally waiting sort of eight to nine hours for the sun to be at a certain point on, uh, what was his first film? Um, Badlands. Yes. And, and they would just all just sit there and wait, uh, because that's when they wanted, that's when he thought it was time. That was the only time that he thought that they could film and just stuff like that. he, I think he visually is one of my favorite directors, but you know, his, uh, his, um, his storytelling has, has perhaps gone a little off the rails in uh, in his later films, but I, I sort of, I can't help. I have to watch every thing he does because, because of what he does visually. Well, was, was it, who was it who inspired you when you were a kid then to get into filmmaking? Was it like, you know, Spielberg-esque who, or uh, yeah, why? It was. Uh, I mean, when I was Why a kid, do it, this painful job? <laughs> <I> do. <laughs> well, you don't know it's painful when you're a kid. That's the thing. No, that's very true. You don't. <laughs> no, it seems like the most uh, amazing, glamorous idea. Like, and even the way that those <laughs> behind the scenes uh, sort mm. of uh, things are shown, it, it seems like it's just the funnest job in the world. Which obviously it, it can be, but there is much more to it than that. Um, and uh, so for me, it was actually Star Wars. It was George Lucas. I was a Spielberg kid for sure. Um, but Star Wars was the the movie that really um, sort of captured my imagination. And um, it was actually my sort of dad then sort of started. He would he would be the one to talk about how films were made. And he would talk about the directors wow. who directed films as opposed to the film as a whole. Mm. And all, all of that was you know, something that, you know, as a concept hadn't really occurred to me that there were people that made these stories. Um, And so, you know, I I was sort of definitely drawn to that. And another sort of early inspiration was actually um, Clint Eastwood. And sort of we would, uh, over here in New Zealand, they would, they would, essentially late at night they would do these retrospectives where they would just show like 30 clint eastwood films like one after the other just all his back catalog of of you know westerns or whatever and you would just get to see you know so to go from you know high plains drifter and all that sort of thing to or or start off with the leone films and then go Mm -hmm. to um you know uh dirty harry and then you go man dirty harry's and of this for a kid it's maybe doesn't you know, doesn't really understand, you know, films, filmmaking and this history. It's like an amazing education um, to sort of be taken through like a, a certain director's like whole catalogue because that's just what here in New Zealand, they they have the whole back catalogue. They don't yes. have to pay for that again and they can put it back on. So all that <laughs> stuff was uh, super inspiring uh, for oh, me Oh, God, well. it must have been. You must have been very tired though after 30 back-to-back Clint Eastwood <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I don't, um so this is incredible and what a lovely way to sort of 
of inspire you into it, your dad talking to you about that. I think that's really lovely as well. A lot of people don't, you know, they just watch the film, go home, and it's really yes. nice to get that sort of education. Um, and from there, how did you, because, you, you know, you act as well, you know, you're in your films and brilliant in it as well, which is lovely Thank to you. see because it's not easy, you know, to yes. play the lead role and direct, write, produce, make the theme tune, sing the theme tune. It's really difficult and you've done it so yeah. well. What I suppose talk us back to making your, you know, your, you obviously made shorts and music vids yeah. and you, you, you successful YouTube channel, but you made your first feature, I Survived a Zombie Holocaust in 2014. But you'd obviously, to get there, talk us about getting there to making that first feature. Sure. Um, well, it, it's sort of, uh, I guess it's kind of interesting in the sense that I made my first short film when I was um, 16 and it was, just, it was, ironically, it was a zombie film. It was set in the cool. cemetery above the school that I, uh, that we used to walk through after detention every every day so we'd finish late and then we'd walk through the cemetery and like wow this cemetery is really creepy we should you know really maybe do something here you should Um, i love that how you had detention every day though i got in a lot of trouble trouble at school um i was not uh, a favorite and um and so anyway i uh i did a milk run at the time milk Mm -hmm. runs don't exist anymore but i did a milk run and um I used the money for that to hire purchase a, a sort of a digital eight camcorder nice. um, to shoot that uh, thing. And that's when I sort of started, I guess, understanding how to make movies or not really understanding, but I, I, so I would, I shot that and I edited it on two VCRs and all the effects were sort of in camera and it was all terrible, but it really mm-hmm. gave me a, a taste for film. I was like, okay, this is, definitely now what I want to do and and this is what I uh, am really interested in and so I sort of continued to make those little shorts with my friends but uh, when I was 19 I um, decided to move to the UK to London and um, uh, I got work as a runner and I worked at a, at a production house as a as a runner um, oh whereabouts where did you uh, work it was for a, a production house called Scala Productions so I don't know if they exist anymore but uh okay it was no relation uh, to the cinema i'm guessing (laughs) well i'm not 100 percent sure um but it was the producer there was uh, a guy by the name of nick powell who nick powell yeah we know is uh quite a famous you know his claim to fame at the time was that he'd he'd exit he was one of the producers on the crying game and Mm. he'd done a whole bunch of other stuff and and so they were sort of uh in the sort of back end of uh, filmmaking and they would set up the financing for films and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And they were sort of the yeah. uh, indie Brit films at the time. And so I worked there and one of my jobs there was to read all the scripts that came in and um, in reading all the scripts that came in, I, I sort of believed, you know, at 19 years old that I could do a better job than I only recommended mm-hmm. in my time there uh, three scripts I think should go into the next phase and these were all you know from agents that sort of thing mm-hmm. um and i'd write coverage i'd do all that sort of thing uh, amongst all my um coffee making um responsibilities and <laughs> buying nick uh tickets to ashton villa uh which was <laughs> essential for the home games if i didn't get the home games uh, if I don't get them seats at the home game, I was. In oh deep my god! Trouble, really? So. That was it. That was, could have been the career on the line. I mean, oh, I that s- was definitely my most important job. But I, I remember the first day that I started there, they were like, "Okay, this is this huge pile of contracts for this film that we're making, and this is for the financing of this film. You have to go through this, photocopy it all, 
and take it to the bank. But you have to check to make sure that every single page is intact because if it's not intact and they look at it, you we won't get financing for the film. So that's your job. Wow. And I Russia. was like, I was like, man, I'm so so terrified. I I'm I'm 19. I really don't. Yep, I can yep. barely answer a phone. Uh, I, I, I really <laughs> a question. I'm I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling with this photocopier, uh, which yeah. keeps jamming, and oh I'm gosh. absolutely petrified that this whole film's going to collapse because I missed the page um, that I have to deliver before you know wow. 4 p.m. to the uh, to the bank. Um, yeah, and that's just, incredible. Can you remember what films you worked on? Can you remember some of the films that you personally um, financed? <laughs> I, 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 am just trying to remember. There was one called Last Orders. Yeah, Last uh, Orders with. Oh um, yeah, of course, with um, with the well, Michael, Michael Caine, Caine and, uh, and Bob Hoskin, maybe. Bob yeah, Hoskin, yeah. that was it. Yeah. They're all in that uh, one, aren't they? So, yeah. Yeah. Tom oh, Courtney as well. Tom said. Courtney, that's the one. Yep. There was a there was another couple around that time, but. I know that was, I guess that was the one that stuck out to me because it was Michael Caine and mm. I'm a huge fan of Michael Caine. Um, mm. But anyway, so I started uh, doing coverage and I started writing my own scripts and I sort of had to leave that runner job, but I started writing stuff and some of my uh, writing got um, sort of uh, quite far along in some competitions at the time and um uh, got sort of looked at by, uh, I think it was Columbia TriStar at the time. Oh, nice. The, yeah. it, it had been read and covered and had been given really good coverage, but I, I couldn't sort of get, uh, I c- couldn't get to the next step with it. They're like, look, this is really good, but we're not going to make it sort of thing. And again, I just really didn't understand what any of this meant at the time. I just, I was just, you know, and if I had a do-over, I would have been, because they, and then I started taking it to agents because obviously I'd had this, you know, really good experience with it. Um, and all the agents said the same thing, which is like, what one, we think you're too young, but two, what wow. else do you have? And um, my answer was always, well, I don't really have anything else. This is like the the big feature script that I've written mm. at the time. Um, so it's a huge lesson there, isn't it? To always have absolutely. another one or even make them up on the spot. Six other tricks, you know, ideas. 100%. Well, I've got this one about this. I've got a Christmas yeah. movie. I've got an action movie. I've got, so they go, oh, cool. Send us it. And then you write it and then you send it, you know, a week later or whatever it is. You've got to have them in your back pocket. You do. Yeah. That was like definitely sort of early mistakes of, of just being inexperienced and not understanding and also thinking like, well, no, this is my one script. This is my my big thing it it has this one is the one that has to be made sort of thing you know cut to you know actually my 12th script was i survived a zombie holocaust which was the one that that actually got made um eventually but i um i spent another sort of year or two uh or year i guess in london and then i sort of moved back to new zealand and and i sort of started sort of collaborating with my friends um making movies again but this time with a little bit more experience and also i started writing for people so quite early on when i'd got back i managed to sort of get my scripts to certain um people in new zealand and then i i started uh, doing a few sort of little writing jobs for them and again one of those jobs was essentially uh one of the producers came down to the small town that i lived uh for a workshop yeah. i showed them some of my stuff and they're like oh okay it's kind of interesting um you know let's sort of talk and then i flew myself up to auckland to have that meeting and i you know slept on my friend's couch and all that sort of thing and again oh, yeah. you know we talk about those things 
of you know taking the initiative um you know trying to make the most of it like that tiny little opening whatever it is and then sort of through that sort of meeting and sort of further conversations with those producers i ended up writing a spec feature for them which didn't get made but it was still like an amazing sort of again learning experience and then uh sort of maybe I don't know, a, a year or two after that was when uh, the zombie film, I Survived a Zombie Holocaust, came around, which was this sort of low-budget initiative, um, which they actually modeled off a UK thing called the Microwave Scheme yeah, or something like scheme. that. Microwave Scheme, yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah. So they modeled it off that, and the idea was that you get 250000 New Zealand dollars, uh, which is you know about £120,000. Similar to, to the UK microwave scheme, yep. Um, to make a feature film. And the sort of the criteria was that it had to be sort of up-and-coming filmmakers, but that hadn't made a, a feature film before. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the idea was that it was the sort of the stepping stone. And um, I hadn't actually written the zombie film at the time, but within another script, there was a scene uh, which was basically about uh, zombies uh, attacking a zombie film set and sort of uh, the the comedy of that. And that was mm. um, that was because that is basically the concept of the movie. And that one yeah. scene was sort of one of the ideas that I pitched for this initiative. And they're like, yeah, we we really like that idea. And so I wrote the script um, even again, even though I didn't have to like it was just to develop a treatment. Mm. I was like, OK, well, let's get one up on that. Let me write write the whole script absolutely be, um, be creative before you know you're there and saying i've already written it by the way yeah i'm here yeah you're showing initiative massively and yeah so i wrote that script and then essentially what happened is they narrowed it down so we we're one of the I, I can't remember how many maybe it's like 14 different teams and from those mm-hmm. 14 or maybe 10 they would pick four um to actually uh, make the film but that, those 14 essentially had to do all the pre-production of a feature film um, but you might not get the money but you might not get the money it. oh my so gosh. it was a it was a super terrifying proposition yeah um and it was also yeah it was pretty tough for those teams that didn't get it you know i was very fortunate um to be one of the ones that did but um again that came down to like sort of being prepared as we absolutely could so our sort of uh uh, pitch uh, pitch deck sort of thing was like this it was like 90 pages the script wow. that i written was like five drafts deep we'd done character artwork um we'd had a bunch of um sort of uh, uh like local businesses signing on saying they'll sponsor the film they'll support the film mm-hmm. all this sort of thing so we were like incredibly detailed and prepared we had visual effects and special effects breakdowns and stuff like that and and so like we were incredibly meticulous with our submission and i think um that was partly what sort of helped us get that funding and so we got that money and that was in i think the end of 2010 and the other thing was that you had to go into production within six months of of getting the 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 money something like that so at Um, that point you're going well i'm prepared because you've done all the groundwork you've done all the budgets and the vfx work and the you know how it's going to look you pretty much got all your team in place yeah well get locations and cast it right i mean we thought we were prepared okay tell Um, us yeah um we thought we were prepared i think that the issue with our r1 was that it was incredibly ambitious and i always say this but it was sort of like a five million dollar script on a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget um in terms of like the scope and the scale and Mm. you know what we sort of talked about you know which we sort of pitched you know like if you think about it like oh, well, we'll just use like the film crew as extras of the film crew. And it's like, well, 
then who are the film who's, crew? Yeah. <laughs> who's yeah. doing the work the crew are meant to be doing when they're on screen? Like, so like these kind of concepts that we, we sort of pitched as ways that we would save money were kind of not really practical. They didn't really make sense. And, um, and so, you know, the issue with the, with that, and, and look, the, <laughs> that film, like I'm, I'm very proud of the, the final product and I, I, um, I sort of stand by that, but uh, the, the it was a very painful uh sort of experience because it was sort of every day i think my um director photography said it best he was sort of like we were we were just flirting on the precipice of total disaster every single day as in it all going completely wrong and we're just on that knife's edge the whole time because you know you just when you have so little money but you're trying to do so much there's so little room for error one little mm. slip the whole scene is ruined it's done you you know there's and and so we had a lot of that and it was you know that became a very trying and sort of taxing um experience to go through especially if you first feature film like because i had i had shot a lot of stuff but i had shot it on this very small scale where we're talking mm. about uh, you know, you know, at most like a five or ten person crew, and I'm going to to a crew of sort of thirty, and I and you know, people were talking to me about, you know, well, if you want to do that camera movement, um, the the focus pull is going to have to set their focus here, here, and here, and I was like what are you talking about? Didn't the camera do that automatically? You know, like I just, there was just right. things that I did not understand. And I, I don't want to say that I was not, I was incredibly prepared with like, I came with storyboards and shot lists and I would mm -hmm. discuss with the day with my director of photography. We had sort of plans in place in terms of, you know, how we would film outside scenes to make them quicker and, you know, what sort of lenses to make. Everything was sort of like very, carefully planned but it was still like you know i didn't i i remember one of my other mistakes was i was like cool well we've we've got that shot now let's spin around and get uh you know the next sequence in my head the next shot and he was like yeah. well if we do that we're gonna have to reset all the lights and i was like what are you talking about he's like well we have to turn all the lights around mm -hmm. to do that half of the scene so you need to do this half of the scene first you kind of need to shoot it out a sequence and that was those kind of little things were very hard for my brain to compute at the time because, mm. you know, I never, you know, filmed that way. No, um, you just grabbed the camera and like the shorts, yeah. I imagine lit a bit, but you just spin it all around, go that way, exactly. then come back, come back, come back, come back. But when you've got a big setup with loads of lights <laughs> everywhere, you can't just go right whipping around there because you do that, that's a half day, you're done. You, you never exactly. come back the other way. They go, no chance. Big crew, big crew, which must have been daunting but at the same time great i mean like I say you made the mistakes by that but someone told yeah. you so therefore you corrected those mistakes right quite quickly yeah it was a yeah. it was an education and and the other thing too was we were filming it in um we we're filming it in dunedin which dunedin is the small town and it's it's quite uh separated from the rest of the well really the new zealand film industry is based in auckland and wellington there isn't really a film scene in dunedin which means that there is a lot less experienced in terms of the crew mm -hmm. that you might use. Um, and so we had some very, like I had a very experienced production designer and I had a very experienced DOP. Um, but then the, the, the people around them were less experienced and we didn't have any money to kind of lure people down. You know, people like, you know, a, a focus puller would say, well, I make $500, you know, or, or $600 a day. 
and you're offering me $150. And I'm like, well, yes, but the good news is the whole crew is on $150 per day. Like I'm on $150 per day. You know, like, this that's is not a, good news. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is a, this is the flat rate of the yeah. a, entire thing. Um, and, but that doesn't really work for, for people <laughs> or, or a lot of people. Um, yes. And, and so, you know, we had a, a lack of experience in certain key positions that again, just made that, that, uh, that experience more difficult more difficult than it you know would have been you know and, and in subsequent experiences having worked with more experienced people you you just don't run into the same issues one of the other big things is that i was obsessed with doing practical effects because i love practical effects uh, mm-hmm. i believe in practical effects even still now you know i yeah. think they look the best and i was extremely influenced by you know peter jackson and brain dead and or dead alive depending on where you're from and <laughs> Uh, all those all those um films and i was like so they have to be practical and what happened was essentially the guy that was doing the practical effects none of them worked like not a single one not ever so every single day we would set up for a practical effect it wouldn't work would reset lose half an hour hour it wouldn't work and then it would be like okay well we just have to move on now because we can't just keep uh not doing this practical effect but then what happened was essentially what all these all these um you know special effects had to become visual effects but we had no visual effects budget because we'd allocated it all for the special effects yeah Yeah. Uh, and there was just stuff like that which you know did you know we were then hamstrung at the end because it's like okay now we just need again to call in all these favors ask all these people Mm -hmm. and try and get something that is you know to a high enough standard that it's it's going to work um looking back now how would you yeah. change that how would have you have uh stopped that happening how could you i mean i'm, I'm asking I mean, that i kind of know yeah, the answer but like what could you have done differently to not let that happen you know trust your filmmaking instincts because there were so many um problems that i could kind of see looming on the horizon and related to these sort of issues where i go look I'm identifying this problem and I think this is a real issue and I'm really worried about it. And then people would turn around and go, ah, don't worry about it. Well, we'll sort it out. Don't worry about it. And then that problem would come to fruition. And yeah. it, it, every single time I was told not to worry about it, I should have worried about it. And, right. uh, that's a good and, lesson, and, 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 and that's yeah. when you have to sort of, you do have to trust your gut and you do have to, to make some tough calls. And with that all in mind, what was your sort of, what was the road to, um, from I Survived a Zombie Holocaust to older. I was still in the sort of post-production process of um, Zombie Holocaust and I was in that sort of um, will it ever be finished sort of situation. And But I was obviously trying to think about my next project because, again, I had learned that lesson that you can't just release something and, and then have nothing afterwards, have no follow-up. That is the, you know, that key mistake that I made when I was younger and I think that a lot of filmmakers make it over and over. They they bank on this one idea, this one film, and this one thing being it, and mm-hmm. then it's not it, and then they have nowhere to go. Or as they recover, they're spending another you know two or three years setting it up. So really what I was thinking was uh, I wanted to make something that was um, not – going to be like it was a true low budget film so it wasn't a you know five million dollar film masquerading yeah. as a two hundred fifty thousand dollar film um i wanted to um sort of approach it how i sort of perhaps initially thought i would like i kind of thought a film like older would be 
my first type of film, not mm-hmm. a film with, you know, um, a thousand zombies running down a street, you know, that would closed <laughs> off, you know, like I, I was not expecting to do that on my first film. I was expecting it to be much more intimate, much smaller and, and um, I guess much more chill, I suppose you, you, you would say. Um, but it was sure. a, a small scale and it was, what I wanted to do was like a walkie-talkie film because I love those types of films. I love mm. films that it's, it's well, just about characters and dialogue. Yeah, you've and, talked about. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that is Linklater's jam, isn't it? Through and through. And, <laughs> and you know, what had happened is when I was doing sort of pickups and like little bits and pieces, uh, we had originally filmed in Dunedin, the zombie film, but I was doing pickups in Auckland and I was doing it with the, the Canon 5D Mark II. And I, it just blew my mind that myself and, you know, my, my like a DOP friend, you know, the two of us could kind of create, it wasn't exactly, but it was so close to mm-hmm. the image that we would create with this crew of 30. Yep. Um, you know, I, I, it really sort of inspired me. I was like, wow, uh, wait, so we could just get this look, you know, we, we could just get this look. We could yeah. make a film and it could we look could like this. That. Well, there's so um, many stories of people doing that. You know, uh, Julian Doyle, who's the editor of all pretty much all the Monty Python movies, he said a lot of it he just shot in his back garden, pickups of hands and pickups of things. That he yeah. said he just went into his back garden, switched the camera off and shot. And it totally fitted in the movie. And when you hear all these things, this happens all the time. Robert's they did on the stories. Force Awakens as well, didn't they? J.J. Abrams, like a lot of did that, he? like the inserts of that were shot at, bad robot which is his sort of studio in la like whilst mm, they were editing yeah. and, and it, the film you can do that and that sort of does make you go oh when the big boys are doing that and they're doing it on the big films you go well of course we can pick up a camera and make something yeah. look just as good as this we don't need necessarily all this baggage it helps but you don't need it and that was obviously your inspiration to go hang on we can go do yeah. this ourselves Right. Should we, should we just let everyone know what Older's about and then we can play the trailer? Okay. Well, um, I've got my little blurb here that I'll just read. But um, <laughs> Give us your kind of from the heart pitch. Like, well, from the heart pitch is I wanted to make a, a rom-com uh, or a romantic drama, I guess, which, you know, followed the same conventions as a romantic comedy, but felt like a, a, a real life. It felt honest and it felt authentic and it felt like a relationship or relationships that you yourself might have had, but in a very truthful way. Someone's come to visit you. Did you see that, Alex? He smiled at you. Which hold him for a minute. I just don't want to drop him on his head or don't something. Don't be silly. It's a baby. They don't bite. No, this is... Uh, one, please. Better make it two. Oh, oh sorry. Jenny. Alexander. Uh, Your hair has a lot more grey in it. It's also thinning. And you look exactly the same as high school, apart from all the wrinkles. What's going on with you in filmmaking? Not much. I'm also living with my parents again. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you still have a thing for Stephanie? Correction. We still have a thing for each other. It's just that there's been all this build-up and I feel like if it's not the most amazing, magical thing in the whole world, you'll think we failed. Oh, I think that. Hi! Go on in. Look what I found. No. Do we have to? What do you do when your dream comes true and nothing happens? Get a new dream, I guess. I'm not stupid. No, it's not like that, trust me. You're cool if we're not totally exclusive why do you always have to label everything to my new best friend on her birthday are you still doing work can i come over 
one of your stories and everything is going to turn out just as you planned. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just going to run away again when things get too tough. I know you, Alex. You're just a boy. One day soon it'll all be gone. Well, no one can be prepared for getting old. That's what I'm afraid of. Gorgeous. Uh, and that was a trailer and it's just a really lovely heartfelt, delightful little film that was made for very little money. We'll say a micro budget. You can tell the people uh, at home, if you like how much it was made for, now it's out. It's totally up to you. Yeah. Um, but it stars, obviously, Guy uh, Pickerton as the lead, Alex. Harley Neville as Henry. Uh, Peter Coonan as the wise man. Astra McLaren as Stephanie. Alicia Ward-Knox as Jenny. And Jay Simon as William Horace, who I've worked with uh, back in the day on a really? feature film we were both in together. Yeah, there you go. Jay is a great dude. He is super fun. He's super supportive. He just really, he had no reason to, to do this film except that, you know, he sort of wanted to help out and, um, uh, you know, had that very small cameo, but, uh, amazing guy, Jay. So freezing our nuts off, um, you know, (laughs) trying to film this like little scene with a a little 5d Mark three on a, on a, on a shaky tripod and um, you know zero lighting and all that sort of thing and well, uh, he was just totally that. up for it <laughs> well let's talk literally because that's so interesting you're walking around like say with a shaky tripod you're trying to get a mic from yeah. somewhere talk us through your process of doing this then yeah you went you, you talk, got sick of the zombie stuff in terms of sick of hearing about it talking about it and wanting to make another film and you went let's just go do it yeah. obviously you came up with the idea and you said right this is what i want to do how did you raise the finance, even if it was, and then think, well, even if we've got no money, how do we shoot yeah. this? How do we make it work? So, um, again, sort of doing the the reshoots and pickups for the zombie film had really given me the confidence that I could sort of produce uh, along with my producing partner, Harley Neville, uh, you know, that we could sort of, as a team, produce uh, a film, a feature, as opposed to have someone mm-hmm. else produce it. And yeah. especially if it was on this sort of scale. And so what we did is we we raised some of them. So the film cost about, uh, I mean, it's hard to say because it's been seven years. Mm, and so your time. Um, We're not charging for your time. Well, and sadly. also I keep, <laughs> I, I sort of kept spending money on it past the initial budget. Um, but yeah. I would say that it, it, it cost probably about, I guess if you factor in some of the the post, especially like some of the post production finishing costs, uh, mm-hmm. just over um, ten thousand or or maybe at the most fifteen thousand New Zealand dollars. So again, sort of we're talking wow. about seven thousand pounds ish. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and that is of course calling in some huge, huge favors with our with our color grade and our sound mix. Um, of course, yeah. Uh, but you know that's sort of how much we did it for, and we raised the money. We did it through um, a crowdfunding campaign. We did it through Indiegogo and we sort of did a proof of concept and everything. And we, you know, shot some tests and all that sort of thing. And with the idea Mm -hmm. that this proof of concept would be like, hey, see, we can deliver something like this. Um, And so we raised, we were trying to raise $20,000, I think was our our target, but we weren't really trying to raise that. We, that was like, like if the best possible scenario we raise that money. If we raise zero money, we'll still do it. Everything's still the same. We'll just have a lot less money. And what we ended up raising was, I think, about five thousand US dollars there. And then we also had about two thousand dollars that we'd 
earned from our YouTube, uh, uh, our YouTube channel, uh, Pigville YouTube channel, which, you know, mm-hmm. had been quite um, successful, you know, with our skits and stuff like that. So we kind of pulled that together and that was the money that we used um, for, for our filming, for our initial filming. And then a few sort of little bits and pieces later. Um, but that's how we got the money and, we used a, a chunk of that, or I actually don't think we did, but one of the first things we did is we bought the Canon 5D Mark III and a couple of lenses, a 50 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens, um, mm-hmm. uh, on lens and a Carl Zeiss 50 uh, sort of older, slightly older lens. And that was our sort of thing. But uh, one of the big advantages we did have uh, is that we also had our friend, the director of photography, Adam St. John, who was based in Australia, um, but he has family in New Zealand. So he was like, I will come over for this three week period and I'll shoot this for you. I've got a bit more gear. We'll still use the the 5D. Um, I've got a 5D as well, but I've got a few more bits and pieces. I've got some lights and stuff like that. And we will shoot that. And so that sort of initial three week period, our goal was to film approximately like, I guess, 80% of the film, the hardest bits, mm-hmm. and then pick it up, you know, uh, subsequently over weekends and stuff like that um, just as we sort of went um, so that was our mm-hmm. sort of our plan and our, our schedule and that's what we did so we, we sort of aimed to shoot the most difficult bits with Adam and then I would pick up the rest as I went uh, when he had to go back and you know again part of the reason we, we, we sort of rode in London was because uh, I was just traveling to London to to, to visit my my grandmother to celebrate her right. 80th birthday and and nice. so it was sort of again how can we maximize our production value how can we bring that up how can we add another dimension well mm-hmm. alex goes to london at a certain point you know and and yeah of course he would he's running away he's running away from his problems so you know it all, yes. all fit and and so yeah there was a lot of decisions like that of of, of how can we sort of make the most of, of what we have and, and, and shoot in a way that is a little bit different because again, those sort of those weekend shoots um, and stuff as you know, we're talking a super minimal crew of like three or four people. Um, cool, yeah. And so again, when you have to shift a huge crew and you have a lot of good gear, I think that's one of the big advantages when you're talking about these low, low budget indies is that, you know, if you want to go and shoot a, a pickup f- for your film, Giles, y- okay, mm-hmm. well, you need your RE and you need yeah. your, your DOP back and you need this and you yeah, need your a- location and yeah, your the act- costume, makeup. Actors, yeah. 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 And it's, yeah, yeah. it becomes this, this beast, this, this, this thing. And it, it grows and grows and grows. It's um, a lot of money. Whereas, yeah. you know, when you're shooting on this thing, it's like, okay, well, what, what do I need? I've got all the gear. Uh, I know these people, I know they're free and I can just bring them Mm -hmm. together for that small amount of time. And you can be very sort of nimble and agile in terms of those pickups and those reshoots uh, in a way Mm -hmm. that a big film that is probably, and I'm going to say it's it's one of the few advantages you have in that realm. Um, uh, And we were looking for those advantages. What, what could be those advantages? You know, where could I get to with me and my camera um, without, potentially yeah. asking for permission because I didn't well, that's have what to. I was, I was going to ask you, especially in London and <laughs> yes. stuff, how did you get the permissions or did you not? You just shot, right? We just on, shot because it was just, just, it was okay. just um, you know, it's 
essentially a stills camera it looks like a stills camera Mm -hmm. and it's one other person you know filming me for the most part so no one's ever going to ask you what you're doing or why you're there unless you put sticks down this is the sort of rule in london unless you put your legs down your sticks your tripods down on the floor Mm. they can't actually stop you so we were filming outside harrods um yeah and it's a case of look as long as you don't put the legs down We had a steady cam, so therefore we could move around. But obviously a steady cam looks like a big old, you know, people are filming. There's clearly <laughs> yeah. something happening yeah. here. Again, you ask, but at the same time, that's the rule in London. And most cities are very similar. You've got to be careful if it's a public owned area. Yes. Uh, then you, sorry, if it's a public owned area, you're fine. If it's a private area, like Liverpool Street, it's very difficult. Someone will literally yeah. stop you if you've got a camera in your hand. But anywhere else in London, you're actually, uh, it depends on the boroughs, but you're allowed to walk around with a camera in your hand and film. News crews, you pretend you're doing a documentary or whatever and you can yeah. get away with it. Just don't yeah. use um, any fake guns or anything like that. That's probably that's right. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's your main. Or real guns either, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. whichever. Um, so that, I love that, that you just went, Let this is how we're going to go shoot it. Well, did you come into any problems? What, what tips and tricks can you give to our filmmakers? out there where we ran into problems um i think was again really more in in the in the post-production than than the shooting the the, i mean i will say that you know for me one of the mistakes i made again looking back one of my biggest mistakes was that i wrote the script in a hurry uh because i was writing it to a window of time when we could film it, when there was sort of an opening, when I wasn't consumed with responsibilities with, with zombie Holocaust at the time. And I, so I wrote it in a hurry and it all kind of spilled out of me. And I did, you know, pretty extensive rewrites when I was working with the actors and all that sort of thing. But I still had, uh, you know, sort of a very big, long script full of what lots of wordy dialogue um that right. was, you know okay uh which i ended up cutting all of out you know i i ended up editing a lot of that out i i did some mm. structural changes um you know in that and uh, so when i sort of completed uh that principal photography and i shuffled some things around but i could have made the shoot a lot easier for me if i'd done if i'd been harder on myself and being more disciplined with my draft. That's really interesting because, like I say, it, you then end up, you can shoot less because now yes. you're in the edit, you're going, well, I'll just cut that out, cut that out. But actually, you could have saved yourself so much time on the day, spent more time rehearsing, more time making Absolutely. it look prettier rather than rushing through it. So that's a really good lesson. Get the script the best it can be. But sometimes you don't know. Yes. And this is true as well. You don't know until you're in the edit. Then you go, oh my God, why didn't I just take that out? We don't need it. But at the time, you really think you do. It's a really fun, hard balance to get right. You don't know. Well, yeah, you absolutely, don't. You're absolutely right. And I think that's a really fascinating thing that we have, because I have always had the same issue, is that exactly what you said is, is that you will shoot something being absolutely sure that it's going to be in the film and it's absolutely mm-hmm. necessary for the story. It's vital. It's the most crucial part of the story. And then you yeah. end up going, you know what? We don't need that at all. Uh, we, we should cut that out. And there's also a lot of things where you look back on a scene and you go, you know what this needs? It needs this one thing. It needs this mm-hmm. one line. It needs this one insert. Yeah. It needs this one yeah. shot behind the person or whatever it is, but you will only ever see that after you've, after you've shot it you will only yes. ever get to that conclusion having done it you can't you can't you can't see that as you're doing it and and mm-hmm. i guess that is one of the advantages that we had too is that 
I could I would have these aha moments, and then I could write a uh, uh, I could write and change it and shoot a pickup. And I we we we, we yeah. reshot one scene sort of like five times for that specific thing. As I do it, I'd be like, you know what? It's still not right. Let's just do it again. It's still not right. Let's do it again. And I'm not saying that you should reshoot scenes four times in a row if if you could possibly help it, or five <laughs> times in a row. But that was that. You know, what is the advantage of of being a micro budget film? It's it's being able to mm-hmm. do things like that. So, um, yeah. you know, well, and th- and the other thing there is to not piss off your crew or your actors in any way. Be- well, <laughs> yeah. because you need them for those pictures. You do. Or you issue, do. And otherwise, I just go. I'm not doing that. And I don't that, care. And that's you- a, another thing is like you you do have to understand is that you know everyone I no one cares about the film more than you. That's always mm-hmm. going to be true of any film you do, probably, if you're sort of in the director's chair. Um, writer, director, producer yeah. chair. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And so you have to be aware of that and you have to sort of understand people's uh, limitations and the limitations of their patience for you to kind of tinker and meddle and push things, you know, when they've had enough, you know, whether that's in a day going long and asking them to stay on or, or, mm. or whether that's sort of just kind of, you know, do you really need this one thing to be absolutely perfect or is it something that you can take and, and sort of, and, and move on from. And I, and I think yeah. there's, there's a lot of that becomes, that's much more like, it's one thing to go, well, look, mate, I, I don't want to hear you complaining because, you know, you're getting paid a lot of money to do this. Um, when you're not getting paid a lot of money, there, there's no excuses like mm-hmm. that. You, you have to talk it's to true. someone on a, on, a, on a very honest level and say, look, I really need this. C- can you please stick around for us to do this? Or I really need you to come back for the scene. So can we please do that? Um, and you, you can't have any of those um I don't know, ego things or, or power play mm-hmm. things. You can't look at it like that. You're a team, you're a family and you have to really work together as a family and, and really be conscious that you are essentially asking for people's free time. That's absolutely right. Let's talk about yeah. distribution. How, how did you go about that process? Because that can be quite a daunting thing, especially for, for indie filmmakers on that level. Well, again, sort of uh, going back to our first film, just to put it very as nicely as possible uh, we were mm-hmm. very much taken advantage of uh, in our first in our in, in our experience with zombie holocaust and, and oh really and, uh, okay. and and one of the most painful things for me about the film is is not at all to do with um with all that craziness that went on on, on set and all those hard times and all that uh you know all that sort of you know pushing shit uphill with a sharp stick like yeah all of that was was not a big deal it's a vivid image it really was it went in my head as well it really came on my ears <laughs> the 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 real issue was then to come to the end of all that to be getting into all these great festivals to be getting some pretty good reviews um mm-hmm. and to be getting and to feel like you had accomplished something only to see other people make money while you you know the filmmakers the the people that did all the work are are sort of left on the sidelines to recover and kind of raise your hands and shrug your shoulders and say, well, what happened? And mm. that's something that, you know, I dwell on, you know, to this day, like that there's something that really hurts me. So I, we had really been taken advantage of. We, we were very naive. Can you, 
Yes. Can you unpack that a bit more and tell us how what what happened a yeah. little bit more? What, um, what did you do? Well, essentially, we um, and I, I can't get too much into specifics, but essentially, we okay. we we made a a, a deal with a, a a sales agent, and you know, this is the other thing is like at the time. You know, I didn't understand how festivals work. I didn't understand what was a good festival, mm-hmm. what was a bad festival. I didn't understand what the difference between a distributor and a sales agent was. And I am not the producer, so this is not really entirely, you know, my responsibility. But that just shows our level of sort of ignorance mm-hmm. at the time to the to the process. And yes. um, what happened is essentially we we signed away our rights and our, you know, our sort of essentially our worldwide rights. Um, you know, collectively to a, you know, a pretty big sales agent and that, you know, that marketing fee, that marketing cap they had was uh, too high, very, very high, uh, extortionately high, but also a lot of the sort of agreements around that, the subtleties of the contract, all of that stuff was so uh, greatly skewed and and Mm -hmm. not, not just in their favor, but in a way that would, you know, that could only end in one specific way for us, uh, which was to make no money and yep. and yep. one specific way for them, which was to make all the money. You've got to be really transparent with sales and distribution and they have to be with you and you have to really know what you're talking about or at least massively research contracts yeah. because this is where a lot of filmmakers get burnt. It's a sales and distribution. They, they do all the hard work, yep. like Guy's saying, and then suddenly they go, God, we're going to get the film distributed by someone. This is amazing. Sign anything yeah. away. And suddenly you've got rid of all your rights and you haven't worked out how long they're looking after it for. Are they giving you an MG? What is the split? What's the expenses cap? Reserved rights? Any of that? What the delivery, delivery materials yeah. that you have to deliver or don't deliver, you know? At which pot gets the payment first? Yeah. You have to know this shit. You're filmmakers and it's kind of like, you know, learn this crap as quickly as possible. Learn from guys saying about this now. Yeah. Because it, there's nothing worse than going, hey, our film's done all right. Any money for the filmmakers or the actors who've done? No. And it's horrible. It, it's, it's absolutely terrible. It's devastating. And it's, if, if you were to take anything away from my experience, um, yeah. I would say that is the most important. It is really understand what you're signing, what you're signing away, for how long, what are all those loopholes, and who yeah. these people are, because you know yeah. that that's another thing is uh, you know structurally a lot of uh, sales agents are designing these deals to take advantage of of sort of naive mm-hmm. first time filmmakers. That's really yeah. their bread and butter to treat their sort of higher tier filmmakers uh, normally. They they need to take advantage. They need to rip off this the the those sort of those those sort of lower budget independent films, and they use that pot of money to kind of fund the rest of the stuff they do. And it's it's mm. it's terrible. I mean, again, we didn't know, but it was no, our... you didn't know. It was your job to know, but I think now it's much easier to know because yes. there are Facebook groups out there. You know, that Alex Ferrari. Set and thank up, God. Uh, Thank God for that. And do go check those out. Please do look yeah. at them, Predatory Distributors uh, on Facebook. And also Alex's book, which is fantastic, Rise mm. of the Film Entrepreneur, which also goes into so much detail about these things that you should avoid. So there really is no excuses nowadays to not 
fucking know this shit and go, yeah. do you know what? I'm a filmmaker. I'm a businessman. It's called film business for a reason. You should know this businessman or woman. I mean by that, you know, it really is important to know your shit. So please, sorry, uh, carry on. I get angry about this because oh. it annoys me that filmmakers do get ripped <laughs> off by this. Do all that work, all the effort. And suddenly it's like, oh no, we just signed our rights away to this company who've just now disbanded and they yep. formed another one of the company. And it's like, yeah, you don't get those rights back. That's something huge, by the way, to put in your contract. If the company sales or distribution goes under, the rights come back to you. The rights revert yep. back to you. Huge. Cause all these companies go down all the time. So that, as long as it's in the contract, the rights come back to you. So then you can sell it again. But if you haven't got it in the contract, you've lost that to, Oh God, so many companies that are fighting to get any kind of money back. You, you'll never see light a day of your film again. And sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, I'm again, I'm just hundred percent in agreement with this. And, and it's also one of those things that it, it kind of, it puts your career back as well, because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, so I didn't, I spent all this time and I, I invested all this thing and I didn't make any money. So as I sort of recover and try and come up with a new thing and do the next thing, I have no safety net. I have no support. I have Mm -hmm. no anything to kind of build into the next one. So there it's a very destructive pattern. And, um, and we got caught in that with our first one. So thanks to people like Alex Ferrari and Mm -hmm. through our sort of initial experience, we were much more, weary and savvy when we came to our, our our next thing and what we did is um we we had a uh so we we went to the american film market and we sort of mm-hmm. uh, essentially um my producing partner harley did he, you actually go you went there personally he went there personally and okay, cool, um cool. he sort of shopped it around set up a bunch of meetings beforehand we sent the trailer around with the little pitch document all that sort of thing um and you, you know, the film commission here helped us with some of those contacts and all that sort of thing. And we got, I think, about eight to 10 offers uh, from, from, nice. from from wow. from that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. ironically, oh. one of the, the first people that we, we had sort of been in contact with was, was Indie Rights. Um, yes. and, and Indie Rights is sort of, a, I guess, a champion mm-hmm. of sort of lower-budget uh, independent films. They're not a, yep. uh, they're a distributor in the sense that they will, will get your film out there, but it's really your responsibility to push it. So it really is. What yeah. that, they're what, good, though. What that means is they're 100% transparent and upfront, mm-hmm. um, but it also means that you can't expect them to market your film for you. So that's your trade-off you're, you're sort of making. Either you maybe go with someone bigger, get them to market yep. it, and have that marketing expense cap that you have to negate before you start making money, or mm-hmm. you, you can use someone like Indie Rights who they don't do that, but you're making money from, from day one, essentially. From day one, out. Which, which is a really good, for an indie film, it totally makes sense because it's very unlikely you're going to make more than 30, certainly unlikely more than 100K. And most expenses caps, they'll want to be around 30K. Yep. They'll want that. Yep. So therefore you're going, well, hang on, we're not going to make any money anyway, even if it does go over the 30K. And let's say it does go over that 30K. Well, that means now the distributor has to share costs with you 50% if that's the deal you got. And now they're not going to push it as hard, are they? Because now they're only going to get 50% for doing the same amount of work. So therefore, you're better off starting off at zero, zero. And that's why Indie Rights are a really good company to go with if you're making a film for very little money, you know, a micro-budget movie. You know, the film is micro-budget, a small budget, 
um, and it is kind of grassroots. And so that all of that sort of suited this style of release. And also that was the other thing is that we like when you are a start off as a filmmaker, you want, I want my movies on the big screen. I, they have to be on the big screen. That's the way they should be enjoyed. And you can't, look that's true in the sense that there's nothing better than the big screen experience i grew grew up watching movies in the cinema and i love that and i don't want that to go away but also i also understand that you know something again that i learned even releasing the zombie film here in new zealand through a a separate distributor was that if you don't have a quite substantial marketing budget you're not going to get anyone into the theater to see your film anyway yeah um and so these kind of are like ego serving money losing propositions for a lot of uh indie films of of sort of oldest level without any stars with um you know uh sort of in that sort of world so it's silly to try and adopt the the methodology of these bigger films you you are much better off to go to kind of check your ego at the door and go look Obviously, we'll do some one-off screenings in cinemas and stuff like that. And uh, we, we did in between COVID lockdowns. We managed to nice. squeeze out a premiere okay. there. But And and it, it did look great on the big screen. It was awesome to watch it with an audience like that. But it's also yeah. awesome that, you know, week to week, I get people from all over the world messaging me on my Instagram or, or my Twitter telling me how much they enjoyed the film, which that's something that I've never experienced before. And that's because mm-hmm. it's essentially because it's on Amazon prime, which is everywhere now. And, and yeah. you know that you have to take that as gratifying as, okay, it's not, sp- you're not in Leicester square today, but you know, maybe that'll mm-hmm. be the next film, maybe the film afterwards, but also if you want to maybe have a sustainable career, it's maybe creating these smaller streaming movies and, and that's okay too. They're still movies. They're still awesome. And that's what we all dream of doing. So I think all yeah. of that uh, sort of informed us as we, we didn't want to try and go big with this film. We, we didn't, we didn't want to make all those create all those same issues that we did for this zombie film and just kind of try and make money from, from day one on it. Um, and, and just, you know, and that has at least in the very early stages proven to, to be going well. <laughs> Absolutely has. And just, it's, it's a really lovely story and really fascinating and great that you've learnt. That's what I love to hear that you've learnt from mistakes, yeah. learnt and got better and then learnt from distributing the movie and said, you know what? Let's bring some money back to the filmmaker. Even if it's small, at least it's something you yeah. can go. I made a film that made some money. You made it for so little. It's, it's likely to make some grand back. And that's so super. So really well done. Older is out now. Everyone on Amazon TV and Google Play. Anywhere else people can grab it? It's a website. We do have a, a version that's available if you if you go to olderfilm.com, it's our website. I, I've created a Blu-ray and there is a, a, a link that you can get uh, the sort of director's cut version is, a, is available through oh, that. Nice. Um, Physical media as well. Is that... yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, Some behind the scenes as well. Some yeah, some behind the scenes and some director's and actor's commentary. And that was actually one of my biggest odysseys of what I had to learn. I, I had to learn how to do sort of every aspect of filmmaking, make deliverables, all that sort of thing. But I, I did most mm. of that stuff with the zombie film. But what I didn't do was I had to learn how to create a Blu-ray for very inexpensively um yeah which on was w- one of my uh, sort of bigger challenges right at the end there and where can people find you guy on the socials at, at guy you guys will find me on instagram or, or twitter um i'm sure um but do, if you ever want to talk talk film shop or uh talk about filmmaking you know hit me up 
Love that. Uh, you can follow me at Giles Alderson. Robbie, where can they find you? you can follow me at Robbie McCain. Another original handle. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all got original handles here. Well done, idiots. Uh, um, but oh, you can follow the podcast at Filmmakers Pod. We couldn't fit the Filmmakers Podcast in, otherwise we would have gone with that original handle. Uh, and if you really enjoyed this podcast, do tell your friends. That's how we grow. And if you really like this, go on to iTunes and give us a lovely five-star review because it feels nice and warm and bubbly inside and you will be amazing. And we'll give you a shout out. Um, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your time. Guy, thank you. This has been incredible. I'm going to go buy some Aston Villa tickets <laughs> and sell them to Nick Powell. I was going to say, it's, it, that kind of whole... Um, anecdote sounded like it could have come from like a guy ritchie film or something like yeah, absolutely got yeah like yeah the young guy working and the, and the boss going you better get me those aston villa tickets otherwise yeah. and that's just one <laughs> of the things that are happening in a, in a colorful caper yeah yeah, yeah yeah thank you very much guy honestly your time is amazing appreciate it a lot thank you buddy yeah, well especially because it's nearly four in the morning now that's right. where you are yeah bless you for staying up it's been uh, it's been my pleasure guys it's been an awesome conversation it has thank you and remember uh, you can go out there and make your indie film you can make it happen just as Guy has done and if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well it is your duty to send the elevator back down we will see you next Tuesday as always go out there and make your indie film or go out there and make your studio film go out there and make your TV series make it happen people any of the above make it <laughs> any of the below oh yeah uh, thanks everyone cheers Guy cheers Robbie take care everyone bye awesome <laughs>